what chapter are we in today? <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Please turn to Mark chapter 12. It's uh, probably universally accepted that for any emotion or feeling to be real, to be genuine, it can't be something that's commanded. It can't be something that's coerced. You can't order somebody to feel something because you won't get a real response from them. If you remember being a kid, I know I remember every Christmas my grandma and grandpa Romano would buy my sister and I, they'd buy me, it'd be a white box from Sears of black socks and tough skin jeans and white undershirts every year. And every year I'd make the same face, and every year my dad would look at me with that face that said, you had better say thank you, and you had better be thankful, right? And, and, and I could say thank you. I could say thank you for the tough skin. You know, I could say it. That doesn't mean I felt actual gratitude in my heart as a selfish little child that wanted toys, right? It's very hard to command. It's impossible to make a feeling by a command. Nowhere do we believe this idea more, however, than when it comes to feeling love. True love is not something that can be commanded, right? It has to come willingly from the heart by choice, or it's not real at all, and who would want a coerced love anyway? However, the Bible again and again and again is filled with commands to feel, or at least what we think of when we hear commands like this, commands to feel joy. Commands to feel gladness in Psalm 32, 11, to rejoice always, to give thanks in everything, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, to literally feel zeal, to feel affection for one another in Romans 12, 10 through 11. So either God is wrong or we are, because apparently it's perfectly acceptable to command feelings or emotions, and God holds us accountable for disobeying these commands. Why do we disagree with God on this? I would propose the answer was actually back in verse 24 of chapter 12. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, you and I. Right? That's why we disagree with these things. How does God's power cause me to feel what He wants me to feel? Is it coercion? Is it force? No, that still wouldn't be genuine as far as we Understand it. How does God's power cause me to possess what He wants me to possess? Beloved, the gospel is how. This is the fifth of six controversy stories in the temple during the last week of Jesus' ministry. It differs from the other confrontations in the sense that more than a controversy, it's like a, a pronouncement since Jesus finds common ground with this scribe that questions him, but it does continue with that common theme of Jesus' superior wisdom and insight. But in context, what would be the purpose right here of a story where he finds common ground with one of his enemies? The greatest commandment of God is a command to love. But God does not command mere feelings or emotions. God commands what His grace produces in us through the gospel. What is fitting for us to have for God in light of who He is for us and what He has done for us in Christ. So when we read this today, this is not simply a challenge to love God more 
than we do right now. It isn't a push to make us feel more for God than we feel for Him right now. This is law doing what the law was given to do. Exposing our sinfulness so that we will do the only thing we can do to be saved, let alone perform the righteousness God commands. Run to Jesus for salvation. The law is a ministry of death, the New Testament reveals. It was given to kill us, kill our notion of being able to please God in our flesh and on our own. If we hear this command as a challenge this morning, if we hear it as simply a command to feel a higher amount of emotion, of love for God, that we can work up on our own, if we just get serious enough, we've missed it completely. We have missed it completely if we read it that way. We are close to the kingdom of God, not when we behave better, But when we realize not only what is actually required of us to enter the kingdom of God, but the impossibility of us being able to do it. This is the foundation of Christianity and what it means to be a church in the world. We need a Savior, all of us, to give God the love that He is due. Because we don't know what real love is. I'll try to make that case. Much less how much of that God is deserving of. Do do we really believe God wants a little bit more from us than what we feel for our spouse, beloved? The love God commands us to have for Him and for our neighbors is not simply a feeling or an emotion. It is the exclusive effect of the gospel in our hearts towards God and by extension towards our neighbors. Let me pray and we'll look at the passage. Father, I ask to be filled with your spirit for the task of this text and this message. Lord, please don't leave me on my own. Please don't let me speak myself, but preach Christ and Christ crucified for us. Lord, please open the ears, the souls, the minds of everyone here this morning. God, enable us all to be able to listen and hear the voice of our Savior by way of the Holy Spirit. Please be with us, O God. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 28 of Mark chapter 12. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. Talking about the dispute from 18 to 27 with the Sadducees. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? So after this hostile group of Pharisees and Herodians came to trap him earlier in 12, a group of Sadducees came to humiliate and discredit him. Thirdly, now here, Jesus is confronted by the third major group that made up the Sanhedrin, the scribes. The scribes were the theologians. These were the experts uh, in biblical interpretation uh, among Jews. So that he would come, that his question would be directly from Scripture is not very surprising. He doesn't come with hostile intent. We don't read that. We don't read that he's there to trap or discredit Jesus. What it looks like is this wasn't planned. He heard Jesus speaking to the Sadducees. It impressed him. He believed that he answered him well on the, answered them well on the resurrection. And he's thinking he agrees with us in that. And so he asks him this question. The text doesn't say he's coming, um, is duplicitous, but that he had heard their dispute in verses 18 through 27 and now is intrigued to know more. Which commandment is the most important? Of all, what is the single most important God gave to Israel and God gave to every human being created in the image 
of God. In Jesus' time, it was uh, very normal to want to summarize what the chief obligation of man was to God. It always had been. It always has been. The prophet Micah does this in Micah 6.8. Habakkuk does it uh, in Habakkuk 2.4. Even outside of Scripture, about 20 years before the ministry of Jesus began, a rabbi, Hillel, said that the essence of the law was the golden rule, what we call the golden rule, and everything else in the law was commentary on it. So it's a great question, one we've always sought. What is the most important command God gave to us, to people, first to Israel and now to the world on whom He's written His law on every heart? Verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So notice that. He doesn't say, don't worry about which one is most important. You need to follow all of them. He answers the man's question. The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So there was, in God's mind, an answer to this question, Jesus cites two Old Testament passages. The first one is from the Shema, the most fundamental summary of man's obligation to God that was given to his people in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. The word Shema means hear. So the first thing Jesus does is cite the summons by God to hear, first of all, in Israel, that um, their God, Yahweh, the Lord, when you see it in all caps, that's his covenant name, is one. This is the fundamental creed of the Jewish faith, that God is one. So the true God is not divided up among many deities and territories. or He's he's sovereign. He's one over all things. Jesus cites the command in the Shema as the one with the highest priority. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind, which is added by Jesus, and with all your strength. So, When Jesus adds that word mind to the sacred text of Deuteronomy, which only he has the authority to do, he's simply upping the ante. He's reiterating even more clearly what this command actually demands. And that's that with everything we do and with everything we are, we are to love the Lord our God. The four descriptors there, mind, soul, strength, heart, all all these things, they're not really dividing mankind up into like a trichotomy. That, that we're, that's not what he's doing. He adds that fourth one, and the descriptors point to one thing. That's what you see that phrase, with all in there, or with everything. Who loves the Lord like this? Who loves the Lord like this? With everything they are and with everything they do. If you're honest with yourself, you know you're answering right now in your heart, not me. I don't love him perfectly. I don't love him as he's commanded. So just so we're clear, everybody in this room this morning, from the pulpit to the pew to the balcony and back again, is actively breaking this command as we speak. So before we turn our ears off to what's being said, there's not a person in this room that this text does not condemn for breaking not just any law, the greatest commandment all the time. So we must listen and respond properly. Not only do we not love God the way 
He commands. We certainly don't show that we love our neighbors as ourselves. We certainly don't show that we love them as much as we love and take care for and serve ourselves. In verse 31, Jesus gives the second part to the greatest and most important commandment from Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew 22, 40, Jesus says that all the law and the prophets, that is, all Scripture, are summarized by these two commandments. Love for God and love for neighbor. The implication, of course, being that those who love God will love those made in His image. That God intended this to be evident is even found in the structure of the Ten Commandments themselves. The first four have to do with love for God. The second six by design, have to do with love for others or for neighbors, seen in light of loving God. So God doesn't hoard His love. He doesn't command us to love Him with everything we are and everything we do because He's greedy or because He's needy. He commands it because having been made in His image, He wants us to be like Him. He desires us to be a means then through which His love for us is extended To the other people in the world. This is the greatest commandment there is. Love the Lord your God with everything you are and with everything you do. And love your neighbor as yourself. That phrase blows my mind. The Bible, Jesus assumes that we love ourselves already. If you listen to the world, the big problem with the world, of course, is that we don't love ourselves. And so we can't love other people. You hear that all the time. You know, I just had I had to learn to love myself so that I could love other people. Right. I'm just going to work on loving myself. Right. We hear this all the time, all the time. I don't know who talks like that, but you probably know somebody (laughs) who talks like that. But that's what we think is fundamentally wrong. Jesus assumes that we love ourselves with a love that if it was given to others would heal the world to some degree. That's powerful, beloved. We do bear His image, but we do not endeavor to take care of others with the same passion we endeavor to take care of ourselves. And when Jesus revealed that our neighbors includes our enemies, we begin to understand just how comprehensive and impossible to obey the greatest commandment and its two parts are. Only Jesus Christ is able to lay the foundation for real love in this fallen world. Only Him. He's the only one who knows what love is. He's the only one who knows what He's talking about in His diagnosis and in His cure. What He says is shocking here if we're listening. Without proper love for God, which is a completely consuming love, others will not, cannot be loved the way God intended them to be. Again, we talk like we have to love ourselves first so that we can love others as though real love originates in the self and not in God. So we all lack the power to do or the desire to do what is needed, but we don't lack the ability. No, we lack the ability and the desire and the power. That is why that phrase, you know, Love is love. Who cares? Love is love. That's why it's so dangerous. It doesn't understand love at all because at its foundation, it is disregarding God, our creator, who is love. 
in his very nature. First John 4, um, 7 through 21. Love is not love. God is love. I know I've said that before, but I want to reiterate it. God is love. Nothing else is love. So just like we talked about last week, just as truth is not something uh, ambiguous, hanging out there in space that can be found or turned into whatever one wants it to be. So real love, the love Jesus is describing, is not an emotion that a child can work up for a toy or a treat that he or she wants badly enough. Because we mean it when we say these things. There's a reason we use those words, right? I love pizza. I feel love for pizza. Not as much as I feel for my wife, but I feel love for it. I, I would... I would go after it. I would pursue it, right? If it's good. The only way to properly assess whether or not we're actually loving is if we know what real love is. And I'm not talking to you, down to you as a philosopher who's discovered it. I'm, I'm telling us the Bible tells us what it is, and we can't do it. We must let God define the terms here, beloved. In his confrontation with the religious leaders of Israel on love for God and love for neighbor, Jesus is attacking the entire Israelite system, the entire world's refusal to worship God as we should. When it comes to love, we believe that if we like someone a lot, support them, are attracted to them, want to be with them, that if we're more willing to forgive them than we are someone else when they hurt us, if we're willing to accept them no matter what they do, no matter who they are, that that's love. So to us, love is just an emotion or a feeling, a significant one, not discounting that, but a significant, deep emotion or feeling of affection for someone, just an inclination of desire towards something that is just much more deep than merely liking someone or liking something. That's why we think God is unrealistic or out of touch or unfair to command love. Because we think love is merely a deep feeling that comes from deep down in who we are for someone or something. Anybody can do that. The, the serial killer loves killing. Right? Anybody can work up that if that's the definition of love, a significant feeling, inclination of desire towards something that you don't have towards other things, anybody can do that. The devil does that. And why would somebody want to be loved? Because they had commanded it. Why do you love me? Well, I had to. What choice did I have? Well, that, that's not going to make for a nice anniversary dinner, right? Or, or any, you can't, you can't base a relationship on a command. Is that what God is doing? Is he just, abusing His power as we would understand it to make us love Him? If love is commanded, it isn't real. It says who? Right? Well, why not? Because our finite understanding of love has reduced it to a passionate emotion or feeling for someone or something. And it's so much more than this. God is not off base to command this level of love. Not in any way, any way, shape, or form. Love is God's word for what He desires His creation to have for Him. It encompasses everything about us. It's why He created the world to worship Him for His grace. It is the defining characteristic of our relationship with our Maker. All other loves, from 
pizza to our spouses. It's not that they're illegitimate, that, that we don't really love them as we understand it. I wouldn't say that. But they are ultimately an echo of who God is creating us in His image and how He meant our fellowship with Him and with one another to be. It's how God meant His creation to function as His image in the world. If God is left out of the definition or identification of love, whatever it is we're calling love is insufficient. We're not correct if we're leaving God out of the equation. And I'm not talking about bringing God into 20% of how we make up our equation. I'm saying love is created and defined by God. He owns all the rights, copyrights, trademarks, all of those things. What we feel for things and people is something, but it isn't the love that God is commanding of us, nor is it the love that Jesus has for His church. That wouldn't be very assuring, would it? Because feelings come and go. What if Jesus changes His mind about us? Because you can stand in front of somebody and make a vow and break it when you stop feeling affection for them. So if that's all salvation, when we talk about salvation being like a marriage covenant, because that's how God defines it. Well, marriages break down, right? Because you stop feeling something towards this person. God isn't commanding that, right? I'm not saying that's not real. I'm saying it's not love as God defines it. God did not pick the emotion we refer to as love and say, you know what? I want you guys to have that for me. I like that. I like the, I, I want you to have that for me. What you feel for her, what you feel for him. I want that, but I want more of that than you have for them. So this is what we do so that we can obey the law. So when Jesus says hate, he, what do we say? He just means love less. No, that's not hating. That's not hating. Hating is not loving less. Hating is if I could kill you and get away with it, I would. Beloved, God created love to be the context of His relationship with His creation. So listen, when we're sinning, we're not just breaking God's law. We're spurning His love. We're literally ruining our whole existence, the whole purpose for which we were created to pursue what we want. No matter how good and beautiful it may be, it pales in comparison to Him. We try to build a peaceful world. We try to achieve world peace through tolerance and acceptance and love. Well, look around. If everybody just wants love as we understand it, why is the world so broken and so fractured? Why do relationships break down, even the most serious ones? Why do we hurt and hate and destroy each other? Because we're trying to build our world and achieve world peace and peace in our lives on nothing more than our feelings. Love is actually the echo in creation of God sending His Son to be the wrath-absorbing sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. That's what love is. That is what love is. Nothing else is real love. That's what love is. It's what Jesus did for us. It's what God did for us in sending Jesus to us. Until we understand that what love is, is built on divine reconciliation with humanity. It doesn't originate from the world. It originates from heaven in the heart and mind of God. 
until we understand what it is, that it's built on this divine reconciliation with humanity, we're not going to continue only being separated from God, but separated from our neighbors and even those closest to us that we do feel love for. Whether that neighbor is our spouse or our greatest enemy, we come up with phrases to justify our sin. I have to love the world. I don't have to like the world. That's funny because it's really easy to love things you don't even like. Right? We can't love someone else until we love God. And we can't love God the way God has commanded us to love Him. It's the law. And the law does not have the power to produce what it requires. It simply tells us where we're wrong. And it is in this way, beloved, that Jesus is the answer. Christ for us in the gospel is the answer to every question we're asking, to everything that ails us, including our lack of being able to obey the greatest commandment, not just towards God, but towards one another. Look at verses 32 and 33. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength. You see how he's changing the terms but not changing the meaning. They're both talking about the whole self, right? That's just how the scribe said it. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. By the way, um, Mark's version of this is much more favorable than Matthew's version of it in 2233. They don't differ or contradict. Matthew is trying to accomplish something different in including this story. Matthew doesn't even include this response from the scribe in his account. But we find in Mark, the man is, we're not meant to be, to, to see him as patronizing Jesus here. He's not doing that. That would be easy to rebut. He's not doing that. He agrees with Jesus. Why does Mark include his response? I think there's a theological reason, of course, that when they aren't motivated by pride or hypocrisy, even the religious leaders in Israel recognize the wisdom of Jesus as coming from above. I also think, though, given the context, he includes it to set up the importance of what he says in verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, so the text affirms that for us, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But look at this last sentence. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. It takes what is, oh, this is very positive, and then it's very foreboding. The man's answer emphasized what Scripture had made clear, that even in the face of the law, which did require things like sacrifices, and scribes and Pharisees protected, they practiced these things, Texts like 1 Samuel 15, 22, Psalm 40, verse 6, made clear, listen, it is much better for you to obey than to sacrifice, to hearken better than the fat of rams, right? It is better for you to do what I say than it is for you to go through the motions of sacrificing to me. God would rather be loved with all we are and all that we do than to be given things from our hands, That is love by coercion. That's what that would look like. Duties can be be performed very well with no affection, no love, no gratitude whatsoever. 
so that we might get what we want more. But he would rather be known to us as a father. His son would rather be known to us as a husband and an elder brother, not as our employer or our sheriff. He would rather have authenticity than rituals. So he commands that we give him what only he can produce inside of us by grace. He does not command what our sinful flesh, if it tried really hard, could work up to feel for him. He's commanding what we cannot give him. We do not have the ability to give to God what God is due. If we start thinking that we can, if we start thinking that we can, we not only are far from Him, we're completely misrepresenting Him in what we do. To obey is better than sacrifice. In order to love like this, something has to happen to us. The last sentence, like I said, is somewhat surprising given how positive the exchange was. Again, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. What's going on here? Jesus is in Jerusalem. Remember, the majority of the Sanhedrin is still plotting his murder on the cross. But from verse 27 on, Jesus has been on the offensive also. And he has won the confrontations here. That's what the text is telling us. He has silenced his opponents here. In the Hellenistic world, that was a sign that a speaker had won. If if the the opponent can say nothing. And now it's time for him to ask the questions, which is what follows that we'll get into next, God willing. So, this man is not completely out of the woods just because he's close. He's close, but close is not enough in verses 38 to 40. But he is also, the text does say, Jesus says, he's not far from the kingdom of God. He's, he's right on the verge of entering the kingdom. He needs to cross the line into faith, though. He knows what the greatest law is. He's answered rightly. But that isn't what makes him right with God. Does he obey the greatest command? No. For that, he will need the obedience of the man standing in front of him that at least up to this point, this man has denied is God's Messiah in Israel. Because it is only grace working through faith that will grant one entrance into the kingdom of God in which only Jesus can unlock the door, according to Revelation chapter 3. How is this man then not far from the kingdom? Beloved, he's at least aware of his obligation. Not necessarily aware of the fact that he's not meeting it, but he is aware of the obligation. He's right He's right. God commands of us a completely flawless, committed, devoted love for Him, as well as a selfless love for our neighbors, even our enemies, Jesus reveals. He agrees with Jesus on what God requires for a person to be brought into the kingdom of God. So, beloved, now we know. No one can enter the kingdom until they're first ready to admit they cannot until we're actually and honestly aware of what God commands and our utter bankruptcy of ability to obey, we aren't even close to the kingdom. We're not even close, no matter how good of a person we might be. 
Beloved, can you hear the voice of Jesus in this text this morning? Can you hear Him speaking to our church, to each and every single one of us? You do know that happens, right? If the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if we did, we would know it because we'd love our neighbors and our enemies as ourselves. If that's the greatest commandment, what is the greatest sin? Right? We'd love to know that too. What is the greatest sin? Tony's sin is sin. Yes and no. Right? I'm not trying to be ambiguous. Jesus himself refers to weightier matters of the law than others. Right? Matthew 23, 23. Some sins are marked out as abominations in Scripture. They're way worse than other things. Some things the Lord is very clear to call out as things he literally hates. People he literally hates over the others. Right? And about which he's angry every day. Here he, Jesus, literally ranks these two commandments over the others to such a degree that he says if these two are followed, all of them have been obeyed by default. If this is the greatest commandment, what actually is the worst, the biggest, the most important, the greatest sin? If Jesus asked us that, what would we say? We would probably answer with something moral. Easily defined as immoral. If you get there, there's nowhere you can go that's worse. There's no lower level you can get to. The greatest sin would be to not love God or neighbor the way He commanded. If nobody does this perfectly, who then can be saved? You see what Jesus does? If it's up to you and I, By what we can understand and assess, there's something a person could do that is more heinous and awful than anything else. And if you get there, you're beyond hope. You're the worst of the worst. Jesus, through the law, imprisons every person that has ever, is, or will ever exist as committing the worst sin possible every day. Every day, if you're willing to say, I know I don't love God perfectly, you're committing the greatest sin it's possible to commit in the universe. I don't love my neighbor perfectly. You are committing the greatest sin one can commit in the universe. There's never meant to be a moment in creation where we could say, at least I'm not that guy, I'm not that bad. Based on what? All of us are committing the greatest sins. Sin in other people should grieve us, not make us get up on this high horse. If in this moment, if in this moment God were to pull His Son away from us, and His blood and His righteousness, and we had to stand for just a moment on our own, if God said, all right, let's see if technically you could stand on your own. If your good outweighs your bad, would we be able to show God, I loved you with everything I am and everything I do, and I love my neighbor as much as I love myself, would we be able to show that? Would we be able to prove that? Who could stand? Who could stand? Who could be saved? 
Tell me who in this room doesn't need Jesus for us in the gospel in light of this text this morning. Because the coming of Jesus does not mean this commandment has been relaxed. No, 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 no. Jesus fulfilled them. He did not relax them. Our Lord does not change. So we better think this through for the next few moments here. I'm asking each one of you to seek the Lord in your heart and mind right now and ask Him to work. Ask Him to work in you. Not because you owe me anything and I'm your pastor and I said it. That carries zero weight in eternity. I'm asking you to seek the Lord in your heart and say, Forgive me for not doing this. And by your Spirit, may it be done. First of all, let's address it. How can love be Commanded. How do you command feelings? Again, is that what God is doing? Because if love is just a, a feeling or a very deep emotion we develop for someone or something, including God, then it would, at the very least, be unfair for God to command that. Commanded love isn't love, right? It's, it's fake. You don't feel it. You just perform it. What if love isn't a feeling? Not saying love doesn't include how we feel towards God. But that feeling is not what God is commanding. The, the, the presence of that feeling doesn't prove we're doing what God commands. It's a fruit of it for sure. But it's not the root of it. Feelings come and go. Again, we justify breaking the marriage covenant in divorce by saying things like this. It's so tragic. We hear it all the time. I, I, uh, I think Adele just said this the other night about why she had divorced her husband. Well, I, I love him, but I'm not in love with him anymore. How many times have you heard that in your life? I, I love them. I love her. I love him. I'm just not in love with him anymore. I have a feeling for this person, but I don't have a desire to stay with this person. And that's considered to be very legitimate. People nod their head to that, and none of us know what it means. I love you, I'm just not in love. What do we mean? Well, I don't feel as much for you in the same way as I used to. And for that, it justifies breaking my vow to you. Right? I would like to propose, obviously, that love is not what we think it is. We know how to have feelings for something. Very strong, legitimate ones. I'm not denying that. That do go way beyond what we feel for, say, a movie or a food. We don't know how to love because love is divine. It is not earthly in its origin. God created and commanded it. If that's the case, we have to understand and admit we cannot produce it then. We cannot produce obedience to the law. Therefore, we can't produce the love the law requires. In this is love. So he defines it. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. God would not point at that and say, how you feel is what I'm talking about when I talk about love. That's not love. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. Isn't that amazing? The feeling we have, legitimate, right, proper for God, that, that, that's not love as God defines it. 
In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and gave Himself as the propitiation. Again, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 4.10 The greatest commandment then is not a commandment to feel the most love we have towards God and not other things. It is to do in ourselves what God did for us. Give everything, even our lives, to Him. To love God is to respond to God with what is befitting for Him from His creation. And beloved, the Bible's telling you that level, that love only exists in its true and divine and intended form when Jesus came and reconciled us through his life and his death and his resurrection to God. That is what love is. If we're not doing that, we're not obeying the command. Right? Doesn't mean you don't actually love your spouse. I'm not saying that or love your kids. I'm saying that what you and I have for them, real, genuine, committed, serious, right, a vow that should not be betrayed, I'm saying that is not what God is commanding we have for Him. Oh, it's well beyond that. Right? Jesus could have felt affection for us and felt pity for us in our need and not come. We feel pity for homeless people all the time. We're not always going out and giving them water and food. And clothing, it doesn't mean we don't genuinely feel sad for them. But we're not really addressing it, right? We know that we're called to love our enemies, but not those enemies. Surely God doesn't expect us to love them. Well, to have feelings for them? No, He's not commanding that. He's commanding you to go die for them. So who's up next? Who's dying for Antifa tomorrow? Who's dying for the communist regime in China tomorrow? Right? When we feel what we know as love for a spouse, God is showing us in that very good and wonderful gift a sense of what He created us to have for Him. Right? The love mothers have for their children. They would die for their children. Right? The love that a husband should have for his wife, that he would die for her, and vice versa, and all these things. It's real. It's like what real love is. But real love doesn't just do that for spouses. It does it for enemies and rebels in their active rebellion against me. How did God demonstrate what he calls love? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We think Jesus died for us because eventually we were going to admit that he was right and we were going to get it right and we were going to believe in him. So what Jesus loves is this improved version of us. No, Jesus loves the you that if everybody else knew you were, wouldn't like you, much less love you. That's what he died for. The stuff that you do that's respectable and the stuff that you do that would get you thrown in jail or ruin your marriage, right? He loves there. He dies there. Love is God's word for the Christian faith, for all of it. Right? Marriage in this example is, is a gift of God to be a foretaste of how we're loved, right? Of, of what He has for us. 
But love is the way God would... What, what, is, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means your, your life is ruled by the law of love. Right? Not just our love for and devotion to Him, but the way in which we treat others, including our enemies. If, if what we want to do is love like Jesus loved, it will come out mainly in how we love our enemies. When was the last time you were watching a riot and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Right? I don't want to say that. Jesus designed Christianity so that how you'd know the church when you saw it was seeing this love. Do we realize that? That's His way. The reconciling love of Jesus flowing back and forth between sinners. When you see that, that's how people know there's a church there. John 13, 35, they'll know us by our love. No other thing is given that privilege or place in Scripture. Now abide these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why? In 1 Corinthians 13. Why does it say that? Because love is the means of our reconciliation with and restoration to the one who made us. What love is, is why Jesus came and lived and died and rose again for us. The greatest thing God has commanded us to do is the most impossible thing for us to do. Meaning that a church then, a church is a gathering of people who first and foremost believe they are completely dependent on God's grace in the person and work of Jesus for us, or we all stand condemned. If that doesn't define us, the world won't know us because that's where love is. That's where love is. That's where it's seen. That's how you know it's there. And Jesus says, they'll know your mind by your love for one another, by your feelings for one another. No, by what I call love, by your complete immersion in the contents of the gospel for sinners. That is why he said they know us by our love and not they'll know you by your morality. They'll know you by your performance. They'll know you by your appearance. They'll know you by the things you don't do. That we think that's what he said because those are the things we prioritize. Don't look, sin, don't look sinful. Don't look like you need Jesus. Look like you've got it figured out. That'll pull people in. Not according to Jesus, it won't. Not for Jesus' reasons. And that's why the church exists. Jesus' reasons. Not ours, right? The only love that the Spirit produces in us is sufficient to actually characterize the people of God. That's why Jesus said that and wants us to know that. We're completely dependent to be the church on something we cannot do, cannot obey, cannot perform. Is that reflected in how we present ourselves to others, to our neighbors, to God, to our community? We are God's people because of God's grace. The church was not put on earth to show people, please listen to me. The church of Jesus Christ was not put on earth to show people that God's law could be obeyed if you just buckled down and cared enough and tried hard enough. That's not why the church was put on earth. The church was put on earth so that we would know, despite our inability to obey God as God has commanded, God in His indescribable reconciling love has provided for us what we could not perform so that we would all be worshiping Him for one thing, His amazing grace. 
If we depend on ourselves to show the world what Christianity is, on our definition of what love is, on us defining the terms, defining the boundaries, we will never properly represent Jesus to Moundsville, much less the valley, West Virginia, the nation, and the world. Love was created by God to be the means through which He would be worshipped, beloved. He saves us by loving us to produce real love in us. God didn't create us to coerce us into obedience and worship. He could have done that. He created us to know the extent of His grace so that what we have for Him is real, genuine, divine, provided by Him. In Christ, God is giving us what He requires from us. Think of the church that is meant to create. He commands love because the gospel is so good, no other response is appropriate. How can love be commanded if salvation is real? That's how. Because it's the only response that makes sense. The divine is to be answered by the divine, not the earthly and fleshly. Let me say this in closing here. Jesus didn't come merely because we can't follow rules perfectly. Right? It's not that we're 57% in the clear, but we really need divine help for this other 43%. He came because we can't give God the most important thing He created us to know, which is why we commit all the other sins and break His law in all the other ways. We can't give God what He created us to know and to give to Him or to one another. I mean, think of all the pain in the world because we stop feeling things or start loving or feeling other things. I don't feel love for you, I'm leaving. I don't feel like obeying the law, so I'm going to take matters in my own hands. I don't feel like taking care of you, you're on your own. I don't feel like waiting, I want it now. And on and on and on it goes. Do we really believe God's greatest commandment is that we would just feel more for Him than we do for other things and other people. If that's the case, listen, no wonder our Christianity gets nominal and unstable. It's based completely on how we feel in any given moment towards God and each other. We base it on what we think we can work up. Right? So no wonder we get self-righteous and hypocritical. We do not obey because we do not love. We only feel. And Jesus came to deliver us from this. God waited until He demonstrated His love in Christ to go public to the world with His salvation. The whole Christian faith is simply the display of what it is that God has in His heart for sinners to reconcile them to Himself. Love, beloved. Love. Love. 